Welcome to Unstoppable Minds, a podcast out of the University of Florida, looking at the challenges and triumphs that come with a life in academia and research. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen, an assistant professor of computer and information science and engineering at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Wesa, a postdoctoral associate also here in the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. We know quite well that science, research, learning, it's all about trial and error. So we're sitting down with some of our colleagues here at UF who've stared down some pretty big challenges in the quest for knowledge. Kyla, I have a question. All right, shoot. What kind of life is underneath Antarctic ice? We're about to hear the answer to that in this episode. I guess I've always kind of wondered, like, what's down there because Antarctica is, like, one of the less inhabited places. So I know that has to be super fascinating. Like, anything they find is news. It's like deep space, but we can actually access it, though it's still treacherous to do so. And the faculty member that we're about to introduce to everyone... Brent Christner is super passionate about the work he's doing and then has the, I don't know, gall to actually go to Antarctica to investigate it. I am an associate professor of microbiology and cell science, and I am a microbiologist. So, Brent, before we get into the important research... (laughs) Could you tell me a little bit about some of the wildlife you encountered? Please tell me there were penguins. Of course there are penguins. Yes. That's that is the life form that we think of when we think of Antarctica. In fact, the first people who traveled to Antarctica well over a century ago, that was the life that they saw. Most of the continent though is been viewed for many years as being uninhabitable. And this is because it's extremely cold, and 97% of it is covered in up to two miles of ice. And those were conditions that were just not thought to support any kind of life. What we are interested in are the kinds of life forms that sort of buck that trend. And we are interested in microbes that actually live in aquatic environments under the ice. And when I say aquatic environments, I mean environments like lakes. That's super cool. Cool. That sounds like a massive research project because you had to transport a million pounds of equipment, a whole team of researchers. You had to battle weather and surface conditions, and it cost millions of dollars to set everything up. So how fragile was this whole operation? Like, could it have all just collapsed while you were there? It very easily could not have worked out as well as it did. And really, the challenges you mentioned, they even extend before we make it in the field. But there's a lot of other scientists that are interested in that question, not just biologists and ecologists, but chemists, glaciologists that are interested in how putting water under a slab of ice will affect the way it moves into the ocean. So one big challenge is just getting those scientists to actually speak the same language. Planning to get all this and coordinate it and getting out of the field took years. So one thing that Brent mentioned was that in 2013, when there was that huge government shutdown, his entire research got shut down for a year. Like everything had to halt, including this trip that they had been planning and just funding for so long. 
there's people in his research lab that also depend on this, you know, graduate students who may be relying on what they find as part of their dissertation. Like that's that's a lot. Yeah. No, I was a graduate student in 2013 <laughs> and I can't imagine. Eventually he did make it to Antarctica. But as you'll hear next, that's not where the challenges end. You're subject to the weather, and there could be two weeks when there's not a plane that leaves because there isn't any visibility. You could have all the planning that um, you could possibly do and still get there, and the weather shut you down. But luckily, that was something that we didn't experience. I'll just mention some other challenges involved. To actually access these environments, we have to drill through ice. So that means we bore a hole through the ice sheet, and that hole is our conduit to studying life in these lakes. So we could put an instrument down there, they'd actually get stuck in the hole, and that would close down the operation. Luckily, that didn't happen. And we could even have a very successful field campaign, and yet we still have to get all these samples back to the United States. And that sounds trivial, but it is not. Simple things like not keeping things from freezing. That is actually (laughs) one of the big challenges we face. We can keep things frozen well, but keeping them liquid can sometimes be difficult. Can you talk about some of the equipment that you use and also even just like the lodging accommodations that you have when you go to a place like Antarctica? Yes. Well, you're camping in tents. Sounds awful, I know. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I know everyone's surprised how comfortable it is actually to sleep in a tent in some places of Antarctica. Now, we're, we're in a place that in the summertime, so the Austral summer, you know, I was able to keep beer in my tent because the sun's hitting your tent and heating it up. So actually, there'd be nights when I'd wake up hot and have to open vents on my tent. There are also other days you wake up and the wind is blowing 50 mile an hour <laughs> and you can barely see, you know, 20 feet ahead of you. And that can change in minutes. A side note here, Brent and his work are part of a larger research team called the Subglacial Antarctic Scientific Access Project, also known as SALSA. It's made up of researchers at universities across the country and involves U.S. and international partnerships. Did you find what you were looking for down there in that Antarctic ice? Yes, we did find what we were looking for. We hypothesized that there would be life in the lakes, but it would be probably microbial. Because I do mention that the conditions we thought are maybe too extreme for life, but they're probably too extreme for anything more complex than a bacterium. The question of how these bacteria can even exist there revolves around where do they get their energy from? If this was a lake on the surface, the answer to that question is they would be getting their energy from sunlight. This is not an option in these systems. So there has to be an alternate source of energy. An ecosystem is kind of like an engine. It needs fuel. And one of the main questions we're trying to address is what is that source of energy for these organisms? And the short answer is those are chemicals, chemicals which are actually liberated from sediments that are in the lake and chemicals that are liberated from rock. So essentially, we're talking about organisms that eat rock. Very cool. Very cool. So it's really fortunate that you were able to find so many living organisms, but it seems like success wasn't always a given. Isn't it true that during the 20 years that your team spent putting this expedition together, there was actually a passionate debate as to whether or not these lakes could even support life? Yeah, that's right. 
There was a very active debate between a group of researchers, which I was uh, part of, and other researchers who actually claimed that the lakes were too extreme to support life. And that debate really wasn't solved until we had first were able to drill into these systems and understand them in a holistic way. Wow. So you all had to prove everyone wrong, basically. It sounds like that. But I guess I might say that it was a minority opinion that a lake underneath the ice sheet would be completely sterile. In fact, if we had drilled into these lakes and found that there was no life there, it might be a bigger story. It would mean we drilled outside the biosphere. And no one's ever done that before. So it would have been certainly interesting, and I would have been surprised by that. But I would say that what we found is not only what I hoped we would find, but also what I expected we would find. I can't believe he actually proved his hypothesis. Also, like the fact that he could prove his hypothesis and bring students there. Yeah, I guarantee not only did they have some pretty amazing stories about their time in Antarctica, they had some pretty cool skills that most students in the world don't have. Yep. And they also have research that nobody's going to scoop because you would literally need to plan your own expedition there. So they know they're the only people studying this. How cool. So it's not every day that you hear about students having the opportunity to contribute to research with such broad implications. And We asked Brent about what some of those implications might be for the rest of society. All right, but now that the debate is settled, polar lakes do support life. What does that mean? Yeah. Why does it matter? Why do we care about these ecosystems that are so far from our reality? I'll compare them to a system that we're much more familiar with in Florida. We know that water that runs off of Florida into the marine ecosystem around it affects the biology of those systems. So those are biological phenomena which are accelerated by nutrients that humans add to water that runs off into the ocean. The same thing happens in Antarctica, but we don't directly observe it. So those kinds of nutrients and outflow that come off Antarctica end up in a place called the Southern Ocean. Probably not the ocean that you pick to go to on your vacation, but (laughs) globally, a very important ocean. That ocean absorbs a billion tons of CO2 per year. It absorbs that through processes of little organisms that live in that water and fix CO2. And those organisms receive nutrients from somewhere. So these rock-eating organisms that I'm speaking of, part of what they do is they take these nutrients which are in rock and they liberate it into water. And that could be very important for seeding one of the most important marine environments on the planet. Another thing is that these could actually be ecosystems which could influence global climate. And an example from this I'll give you is the ice sheet is a protective layer that sort of seals anything that's beneath it. That includes a bunch of organic carbon, which is buried, buried underneath the ice sheet from millions of years ago when there wasn't ice cover there. Well, what happens when you bury that organic carbon and you add microbes is the same thing that happens in our swamps. You might know about swamp gas. Well, those bubbles are in part methane, and that's a very important greenhouse gas. So there's been a lot of speculation that when you remove the ice sheet from Antarctica, that this methane will be released in the atmosphere, which will warm the planet, which will melt more ice, which will release more methane. 
So did you find anything in your research that might help control the amount of methane released into the atmosphere? In our studies of these lakes, we've actually found microorganisms that eat that methane. So they use that energy as a source of fuel and carbon. So when I was talking about alternate ways that we have to think about organisms that live in the dark and how they have to generate energy, this is one of those examples. But more importantly, by actually eating that methane, they're attenuating the release of that methane from the ice sheet. So they could be really important in mitigating release of greenhouse gases as the ice sheet retreats. The third reason that we might be interested in studying these systems is that they're the closest earthly analog to the kinds of environments that have been described in our own solar system, where there are large bodies of water under thick ice shelves. Examples of this include Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. And there are about a dozen other places in our solar system where we know these large oceans exist. You know, Earth does not only have the only ocean in the solar system, it doesn't even have the biggest one. And so if we want to understand how life could operate in an environment like this, you should be in Antarctica studying those systems. Those are the closest we can get to on our planet. So I can imagine, you know, with all of this research, you must have a massive team. Can you tell us some about the students that help you with this research and that work on your projects? Our team consists of graduate students and undergraduate students as well. And in some cases, not in this case, undergraduates have actually accompanied me into the field to Antarctica, to Alaska, Greenland, and other places. So students are the mechanism by which that we do the research. So they're extremely important, um, maybe even more important than I am. <laughs> How unique of an opportunity is this for them to be able to go to Antarctica? I have been to Antarctica eight times, and I still haven't gotten over the uniqueness. Every time I go, it feels almost like the first time again. So I would agree with you. I mean... Yeah, tell me about it. I feel like this is something that is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You've done it eight times. How incredible of a career opportunity that is. It is, and it's something I never really thought you could make a career out of this. As a graduate student, when I was working in IC systems, I was like, you know, this is very interesting, but eventually I'll have to find a real job. <laughs> There's no way that I can actually support this research. But one thing climate change has done is focus attention on polar systems. And the area that I study is wide open because we know almost nothing about the life forms that live in most places that are associated with ice, which is typically underneath it. Well... Thank you, Brent, for sharing your story and your research with us. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. So I don't know about you, but I am thoroughly impressed. The fact that he was able to go and just lead this research expedition to Antarctica under just super uncertain terms and then actually come out with a proven hypothesis that impacts things like climate change. And people think of climate change as being like this super far off thing that is going to impact people, you know, not in our lifetime, but the fact that he can do research today that can impact the future. Like that's so transformative to me. I agree. Like he's clearly incredibly passionate about the work that he's doing. And to spend 20 years of your life devoted to something that you don't know is going to work out is Wow. Like, <laughs> I am entirely too nervous about, like, what's going to happen a month from now. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years <laughs> from now. 
I don't have that kind of patience, uh, steadfastness, um, faith, maybe. I don't. Yeah. And imagine being like one of his PhD students and you're like, my advisor has been working on this thing for 20 years. <laughs> so I feel like he's like a really good like mentor for his students because they're able to just see Perseverance model in the lab, like in real time. It's admirable that students are willing to sign on for a project that took 20 years to to reach completion. And I love that, you know, that kind of defines who we are here at the University of Florida. Absolutely. This is Unstoppable Minds, a podcast out of the University of Florida. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom. Thanks for joining us. Unstoppable Minds is produced by Endeavor Content and Katherine Welch. Managing producer, Samantha Allison. Creative development by 160 over 90 with Benjamin Riskin. Engineering and post-production by Amita Ganatra and Adam Allison. Unstoppable Minds, owned by the University of Florida, is created with many thanks to the talents of Allison Clark, Emily Cardinali, Matthew Abramson, Brianne Leanne, Wise Clairvoyant, and Brian Sandusky. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more information about our show and the awesome professors at University of Florida by visiting our website at ufl.edu slash unstoppable minds. Until next time, go Gators! Gators!